out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, guitarist, songwriter. It's the one and only Terry Reed, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. One time member of the Jay Walkers, Peter Jay and the Jay Walkers, who supported such people as the Rolling Stones and also Ike and Tina Turner, went on to be a very successful solo artist, releasing several amazing albums in the 70s titled River and Seed of Memory. But this is the interview with Terry. Um, he was in LA, I wasn't. So um, yes, anyway, this is all very exciting. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Terry, tell us everything now. It's how early, you know, I've been singing since I was little, you know, so I was sort of like a sponge with all that. <laughs> I mean, every there were so many things I liked, you know, I mean, I, I just... All the I loved all the the R and B groups like the Four Tops with Levon and uh, Levi and 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 uh, all yes. that whole deal, you know, and uh, and the Temptations and I, I loved all that, the whole R and B thing, and then Otis Redding and all those soul singers. I just I don't know, they just really got me. Yes, and I, I know you, you're probably a little bit younger by a few years of, to David Bowie and also Lemmy from Motorhead because they were born in the same year. Oh, yeah, Lemmy, Because yeah. when, they, when they ever meant, were, talked about their early influences, they both would say Little Richard and then they'd say, you know, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, Elvis Presley. I mean, did those, yeah. did, did those artists kind of... Well, yes, yeah, yeah, but that's a bit... The the whole thing of Buddy Holly and that whole thing, I think I I sort of really, yeah, I'm a bit younger than that, you see, but I I came through that with the Beatles doing those tunes and uh, and the little and little Richard, you know, with everybody doing his things, and then, um, yeah, I mean, I loved Little Richard. I mean, that was that was great, and it was it was interesting because I never really got hip to Elvis, and because he never came to England, no. you know, we always. It was it was sort of a bit of a mystery to everybody, you know. When I was sort of growing, I didn't. He, he missed that whole that whole thing, even though everybody knew about Elvis. It was sort of like I don't know, a bit of a mystery, you know. Yes. We'd not go, we'd not come in there, right? It was a very you strange know? thing not to do, actually. Because um, yeah, it really yeah. was. It was, and then we had a lot of people, to, of course, with Billy Fury and Eden Kane. And a lot of those, like me and Peter Jay, Peter Jay knew what knows all all of those those guys. I miss knowing uh, Billy Fury and all these really nice guys and Eden Kane and 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 all those. But, so um, did did you come from a musical household? Did you have some sort of family member that kind no, of? No, I didn't. I I come from around Huntingdon Way, right? You know, out out that way, you know. Yes. And from a small village out there, you know, and nobody in the family was, was musical at all, really. Yeah. You know, other than singing in the shower, you know, it was about <laughs> it. <laughs> when did you and discover, when did you, then, when you did know? the guitar come into your life? Well, that was, yeah, I, I, that was about when I was about 11 or 12. I started messing around with it. And then by the time I was about 13, I sort of, I, I, I really got a handle on it. It was, I saw how you could, you, you can accompany yourself. And, uh, 
And because uh, I was always just, uh, I was singing and singing, and then I figured out that you know, listening to records, uh, you you can't just strum the same thing you're singing. You know, you have to you develop this way of having this independent. Well, in my head, it was. I mean, I'd seen a lot of people who just play the same as what they're singing, and that doesn't work. You've got to have an independent rhythm going with the guitar as to what you're singing. Yes. And that really is the key of that whole deal. You listen to Eddie Cochran, you listen to, um, you listen to Buddy Holly or any of these things. They're all, if you listen to what they're playing, it's got nothing to do with what they're singing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it, yeah. yeah it. And the Beatles are just there. They're like all over that one. I mean, they've got so many different rhythms, counterpoint going on. That's yes. what makes the song work, right? And did you, I mean, when you got to, like, 1963, which I know there's a poet called Philip Larkin that mentions the 60s start in 63 with the first Beatles album and Lady Chatterley's Lover. You were sort of about 14, 15 then, which is a perfect yeah, age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did you have that kind of youthful... No, I was about, let me see, 63, I'd be, like, 12, 13... Yeah. Right, so you were there. But then, you know, that would have been sort of the, the kind of cultural change of the 60s was really... Oh, yeah, that's that's what really hit in England, you know. You you probably know about what the, what the whole thing was, which became very funny later on. But uh, the, the whole thing was when you were at school, you, there was two camps, you know. You either a, a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan, you know. I could never figure that out, being musical and that. I, I couldn't quite get behind that. That's more the identity crisis of, of guys at school, you know. Yes. Who well, are, who well, are trying to impress girls, and, they, and they're trying to figure their own attitude out of what what sort of music they're going to put on. Yes. <laughs> well, music, I, I don't know what it's like now, because obviously we all kind of <laughs> never know what the young people are doing. But when, when, we, when I was young, it was very tribal, so I guess you had that, that kind of those divisions. A bit later on, there was kind of like the rockers and the mods and, you know... Yeah, you see, that same thing went in a different way later on. First of all, it was the Beatles or the Stones. And the funny thing was with me, is what happened is here I am at school, like 13, 14, and and I'm dealing with all these people that are like Beatles or something. I love the Beatles. I mean, God, that taught me more than anything. And then I love the Rolling Stones because they're just their bare sort of... Uh, honesty of how they they play a song, you know. I mean, you, you nobody does anything more honest than them. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. And all those songs you listen to now just totally seem the same to me. They don't seem to change at all, you know. So, what, so what when the... I was doing that, I, I got to the age of fifteen, and uh, I, I joined Peter J. I went on the road, uh, literally, like professionally. And the next thing I know, I'm on tour with Mick and Keith and Brian and everybody and with the Stones. And it seemed it was very funny to me that it's all this thing, which camp are you in? And the next thing I know, I'm sitting there telling Keith about it, going, you know, this is really strange, you know. A few weeks ago, <laughs> everybody was deciding whether they liked the Beatles or the Stones. And Keith's sitting there sort of going, mm, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> sort of like, yeah, he says, oh, yeah, we're all re we're really good friends, you know. <laughs> and I went, yeah, but, you see, you've got to understand, nobody at school understood that part. No. As far as they're concerned, you all seem like you're enemies. They made enemies of you, 
Yes. <laughs> Peter... It's really funny when you think about it. You know? Absolutely. Because with how did you get your gig with then with Peter J and the Jay Walkers? Because he he's he kind of obviously we've mentioned, you know, he's in Yarmouth now, but he sort of was um yeah. I guess he, he was he formed his group well when he was at Norwich College and um and played drums. Oh and right, was... that's when he formed it, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And then he had the band and then obviously were you a bit of a hot shot kind of you know, p- player on. <laughs> well, I did, I, we, everybody had their own uh, amateur bands, which was the the scene was at that time. You come up through the ranks like you do with anything, and uh, you play pubs and you play here and you play there and you do gigs for you know a bit of change and a bit of money. And around our area, in the area wherever you are, there's a place around there called Ramsey, Ramsey Gaiety, right? I'll never forget that. But, and that all the main groups would come through there, right? The Hollies, um, whoever would mm-hmm. play in that area, right? So usually they'd have an, uh, a band of that area as a support band. You'd always, you know, you'd have support. So we got to support all these, you know, great groups, right? the group called the Red Beats that we had, uh, our amateur band, right? Yeah. And um, that's the first band we were in. And uh, we were doing good, and we were having a lot of fun and supporting these different groups. And then we did a, I think it was there, or it was Boston Glidodrome, or somewhere strange like that, where everybody's roller skating around, you know? Yeah. And uh, we did this gig with Peter J, and Peter, it sort of, you know, pricked his ears up, and he went and talked to my dad, and uh, and said, would I, you know, be interested in joining his group, right? Yes. Which was, I was, it was like I was fifteen. I was just, I was still at school, really. Yes. You know? So you know, he said, well, it will mean leaving home and everything, right? And so my dad said, well. It's, you know, as long as my missus can handle it, it will be all right. <laughs> my dad, because we do. My dad was always really supportive of me. I mean, he he, he would. He's a car dealer, and he he, he uh, not only bought the van. He is a lot of the gigs. He drive it yes. at the beginning. You know, yeah, and keep his eye on everybody as we were going along. So you, I couldn't thank him more. You know, I mean, he was always very supportive of me. That's what I was obviously heading to do was going to be in this music business, whatever that was. Because at that point, you you don't really know where anything's going, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody seemed to be in a group and everybody's giving it a try. So you don't really know where these things were. You know what will happen. You just uh, get out there and do your best. You and know? were you still playing your and, first guitar when you you were sort of being introduced to Peter? Well, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, the thing was, if you learn, uh, the first guitar I had was not too clever, right? And I realise now, after all these years, after tearing guitars apart and rebuilding them and designing them myself, I realised why it wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. And it still wouldn't be good now. But... Uh, then uh, there was one guitar I had my eye on, a Gretsch, and uh, with a box amp, you know, which is, yeah, of course, was just like George's, right? Yes. <laughs> and and I thought, well, God, that thing sounds really great. Not that when I got it, it was going to sound the same, but uh, I thought, well, it's a good start. So um, I, I thought, well, if I learn to play a lot of songs well enough, you know, my dad was, because I hadn't got a job at the time, I was still at school, you know. But I said, well, if you learn to play that other thing, he said, uh, 
then uh, we'll invest in a good guitar. Fantastic. So I, I pulled it off. I, <laughs> and, we, and did <laughs> and you... I, and I still have that one, that Gretsch Tennessean now. Amazing. Did you, did, you have, did you have guitar lessons, or were you sort of particularly good at sort of following kind of records? Well, no, or... I, well yeah, I was self-taught, really. So I play by ear with, with all of it, with singing and everything. But what happened was we had a really good friend, Eddie, that my dad knew who played in a local dance band, you know, like with an accordion and a band and, and him and a drummer, right? And they played all the places around all the popular tunes, you know, everything from jazz and whatever. And uh, he was a really good guitar player. He read really well. He reads really well. And um, I, I could see him now. I mean, he played this beautiful one pickup guild guitar, which I, oh, was, was, and he polished it and cleaned it every time he'd play it. And yeah, I just, God, he was great. And so we, my dad said, well, look, maybe some lessons are in order, you know, to learn music and all this. So he gets him to come over. We have a few nights. And uh, I'm, I'm looking to try and figure out what this music is all about. And uh, we're playing different jazz tunes. And jazz, he's showing me different chords and that, which is really interesting. So I'm getting the chords, but I, I haven't really got... I'm very impatient at reading the music, right? And as we're going along, he said, uh, oh, do, you know, you play those Beatles songs, Terry. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I know quite a few. And he goes, well, in this one here, how does, what are the chords on that? I said, oh, it goes like this. <laughs> so I showed him the song. And he went, oh. So my dad walks in while I'm showing him. And uh, says, oh, well, there'll be no more charge for lessons then. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, he suddenly went, you're here to teach him, not him to show you, you know. But don't get me wrong, I'm not being, you know, boastful about this. It's just that me and Eddie started to swap ideas. So we got a deal going, whereas he teach me chords that that I did not know. Yeah. And uh, I'd show him Beatles songs. Right, yeah. which he, which he would go to his own gig, and of course, you know, it worked. That's what everybody wanted to hear. So you think about it; it's like one hand sort of, you know, shake washes the other one, you know. Yeah. And I learned, and now when I look back, there were so many chords that he showed me, you know, and uh, the later on you have an instant recall when you play guitar. There are things you you you'll be playing along with the song, and you'll and you'll work out a chord by finger, and you'll go, how do I know that chord? And, I, and a lot of them are from what Eddie showed me. You yes. Know? So it's kind of interesting, because actually I, I suppose I remember doing an interview with this um, Eddie Clark, who was in Motorhead. But before Motorhead, he was in yeah. a band called Curtis Knight, and it was just one of those bands that you just played. Oh, all yeah, the, yeah, right. Or played all the time, and that's kind of where he learned, you know, really learned to be a, both a musician and a guitarist. So, kind of doing those hours and doing those gigs, I suppose it's a bit like the Beatles in Hamburg and the Cavern Club. Right. You know, it does it does kind of add, doesn't it, to the apprenticeship? I suppose of being a musician. Yeah, it does. You know, the more you more you work at a tune. I mean, there's two ways of working a song. I always think is is uh, that's what you got to be careful of recording wise. This. There's the first time you play the song. I mean, you learn the song, you know, and then and you say you go to record it, right? There's the first time you play it that you that you figure you've got a handle on it. That's a great 
that's a real take. Mm-hmm. Then there's the one that when you really work it and you do it more and more, and you've got to be real careful of playing it too much, right, that you don't over-elaborate the song. The discipline is to keep, to keep it as simple as the first time you did it, right? But tighten out uh, what you have originally up. Just tighten it up. Not to just keep putting more and more stuff in, you know. I mean, a lot of the stuff I, I, you know, I mean, I love what's going on now. There's a lot of great groups right now. Like Bruno Mars is unbelievable. I listen to these things that he's doing. He's like another Michael Jackson. I mean, he's he's just genius at the stuff he's doing, right, Mm. musically. But uh, a lot of it, it's finesse of how you do something you've still got to keep it loose so it's natural otherwise people don't feel that they are part of it you know what i mean you know um, you've um, got too many things going on and too elaborate. a lot of the things you hear are like so elaborated it's you you you, you start to wonder what the song was that you were listening to yeah <laughs> absolutely i guess i mean yeah. you probably watched it was it did you watch the beatles documentary only eight hours of let it be oh yeah Oh, that was, oh, I know, that was actually, it was sort of heartbreaking at one point, you know, <laughs> you, you know. Yes, it was, but, uh, I mean, because I didn't realise, I mean, unlike a lot of things, you think, oh, like the Titanic, you know it's going to sink and it's going to be sad, whereas them, yeah. you know, you kind of expect it to end badly, but actually they got on better as the no, film. Yeah, no, you know what, that's the first time, because I think what it is, the public have their own image and their own ideas of what the Beatles were up to and what they're doing. And the, the stories just abound, you know. I mean, there were so many things. They, they built an image other than the people that they're talking about. And that movie straightened everything out. That They're regular, just regular working-class heroes, <laughs> you know. Yes, I know. regular guys, just like everybody else, right? And And they just seemed, you know, after having their little issues with... I suppose dynamics, and there was a bit with George. But after that was sorted, and they were making the I record. Know, with George said, "I'm leaving the band." It was like you could see how it, it was sort of like, "Well, hang on a minute, you know, we've we've done this how many years now?" Because I mean, it's a hell of a marriage. God, it was going on for quite a few years. Yes. And George was okay. Well, here's the song. I'll write the song. Okay, so George, you figure out a guitar part thing. It it, it, it was that kind of thing, and. Uh, and it was sort of George. Well, I got. Hang on a minute. I got a few songs, you know. Can <laughs> I get in there? <laughs> and he, he was sort of tactful how he said it in the beginning, but in the end, the only way to do it was say, "Well, we'll do the buggy yourself then." <laughs> you yes. Know? You know. But it was just. And, uh, it was kind of heartbreaking because, in a way, it just felt like they just needed to book. I don't know, thirty dates at the Royal Albert Hall, and just because they just wanted a gig. They had some terrible ideas about doing shows on. I know. And, you could see every time they mentioned the gig. No, I don't think that's the thing. I don't think we should do that. I don't think. I, yeah, exactly. You know, well, they didn't have Brian Epstein. You see, Brian Epstein would tell them, "Okay, well, this is what we're going to do. So get that together, and we'll, this is when the gig is, and we'll get it there, and we'll organise it, and everything." But yes. they, there wasn't anybody. They were all telling each other what to do. So <laughs> that's the kiss of death when you get that. I mean, because not, not any two people are going to agree. Yeah. Right? 
You needed. You know, you everybody need... got their own sort of uh, agenda going on. I thought but it was a bit like it Scoob... was very. In... I, th- I thought it was a fabulous thing. How it was finally all put together. You know? Yes, and I, I and think they, they kept some respect for the thing instead of it getting out. Because I hate it when you just talk about the bad times after all the good things they've done. You know. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been awful. And really. also, I loved the fact that they did that, that someone put a microphone in the in the pot where they were having... Oh, yeah, you know, and for years, they could never get that hear what they were saying. In, it was in the flowers on the table. I know. know. I mean, they, they must and have they, been... And with digital technology now, they they, <laughs> they, they, got, they pulled it forward and, and analysed it and scoped it and everything. Yes. And then they could figure out what they were saying. I thought that was just... Unbelievable. I know. That's fascinating. Paul, Paul must have been really freaked out going, my God, I, I vaguely... Oh, what did we say? <laughs> I know, Jesus, I know. It must have been very revealing. But when you when you suddenly, from 15, suddenly leaving school, being on tour, and then being, you know, supporting the Rolling Stones and Ike and Tina Turner yeah. and the Yardbirds, I mean, was that... Um, I mean, how... You must have had... To, I mean, when you see a 15-year-old now, you know, I know when we're 15, we think we're grown up, but then you see a 15-year-old and you think, blimey, you're not even shaving me. Um, yeah, you exactly. know, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things you're not doing right at that point. You know? No, you, you, you just, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, basically you just stop playing with, you know, not... not well, your... the thing was, is that what, what hits you is that it's all well and good, you know, sitting at home, watching it all on TV and giggling when there's a riot going on and there's all these people running for their lives and everything. And and everybody's got a big giggle and thinks it's real funny. And then all of a sudden, what happened to me was I went, I'm giggling away watching TV with the Beatles and the Stones and all these riots. and these. Then next week, I'm on at the Albert Hall and we're doing this gig and there's a riot. Yes. See, I thought when we were doing the tour, and I mean, I had high expectations as anyone would. Oh, they're going to hear me singing, and I hope they like it. And I've got to get this phrase right in the song, and I'm going to really get my get my stuff together here. I'm going to really, get, you know. Anyway, I got they, the lights went up. They, I didn't hear them mention my name. They said it apparently, but they, <laughs> the lights went up and the, it, the din, the screaming is so loud. But it's continuous. It doesn't stop. It just it's, keeps going yes. the whole way through the song. So what happens is you never hear anything that you're doing. Because them are the days, they're not where we had monitor systems and big speakers. I mean, the Stones had like speakers, what they call side bills, things on the side of the stage pointing inwards. Otherwise, you'd never hear anything, right? That was it. But the screaming was so loud, you didn't hear anything. So at first, I went in shock like, what I thought this was, I thought this was a musical gig. I said, I've got all these plans of how I'm going to get this song right, and one night I'm going to do this, and, and then next uh, Every night, bloody screw. And that night, there was such a riot, they closed the show. Amazing. Three, the, song, the Stones only did three songs, and they, everything went black. All these girls came over from the back. After that gig, they never had anybody sitting behind the organ at the Albert Hall. It's too dangerous because they do, yeah, right. They come straight over the back. Yes, and you were, and oh, you. It was dangerous. And you were only oh. seven, being seventeen with you know standing there. Was it? Um, and this was, I was like fifteen. 15. That was, I was fifteen on that one. 
That was 1965. Right. right. I mean, and how did you start to sort of navigate it? Because obviously you must feel like, oh, this is kind of normal, but it's not really normal, is it? Well, you, the first thing you do is, is, is get out get out underneath all these girls screaming, coming out and over the top of you and head for some exit, Little those little box. You know, at the Albert Hall, they got these little steps that, for the orchestra and all the people come up from the from the dressing rooms on this, I think it's three or four across the stage, these little set and two little doors. We all took a dive. <laughs> I went there, I mean, Brian Jones was in front of me. I was diving behind him. I think Bill Wyman was behind me. I said, we just dived down these these little steps, right, to get out, because it's so it's dangerous. Yes. And with, Pete, and with the band, Peter and the Jay Walkers, did you ever yeah. go into the studio to do any, you know, recording? Yes, we did, yeah. No, we recorded, there's some, there's some things that are on a, an extended uh, uh, thing that EMI put out of me, right? And he put out the things that I did later on and earlier things, and we went, we did a bunch of recordings at Abbey Road. Right. Yeah, that, that must have been quite amazing. And as, as... oh, that was that was insane going down there. You know, I went in there quite a few times, and uh, I really that that studio really does have a sound. When I listen to the things, you can there's a room character about the, not only the good equipment, which isn't there anymore, but the, just that room, the A and B, just have a character, especially be the big room. You know, yes. there's a there's a real character about the room, the sound. It's uh, it's just fantastic. Capitol Records is is similar that way here in the states. You know, it's uh, I've, I've recorded in there and sung in that room, and uh, it's just different places. I think what it was is when they built those studios, they really did get the sound acoustic technology. They really got it right. You yes. know, they really planned it really well, right? Uh, now, when they build studios, they don't build, they don't build them based upon acoustic value in the studio itself. You know. Yes. So did it you? Seems to me, a lot of the ones I've been in are new. I just don't have acoustic, uh, you know, really true acoustic value or anything anything that's characteristic of the place. Yes. Right? So did you record? Yeah. Was it the hand? The hand don't hand fit. don't fit the glove. That's right. Yeah. That's the one which that is on, was at Abbey Road, and that was with and John Burgess was the producer. That's right, John Burgess, uh, John Martin, and John Burgess. Right, that's right. Jeez. And uh, that was with uh, Johnny Harris's orchestra. Right, right. Yeah, with Big Jim Sullivan on guitar. I mean, that day I walked in, and they said, "Come in, we're going to do a couple of tracks," and I went in. Just what you, it's funny you brought that up. You got me going now. Is that uh, we? I went in there, and it was in I think it's B, the big room, Abbey Road, right? It's it's not A is the one upstairs, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, there's a big stairs against the wall there, right? So anyway, so I turned up, and they said, "Well, go go on in, yeah, they're waiting for you." I said, "Okay, right. so I'll go in the door, and I walk in and. And I, hi guys, there's the whole orchestra in there. I go, oh, I must be in the wrong, wrong bloody room. So I walk, <laughs> I walk out, and I walk down the corridor to where the booth is. There's a corridor with the glass between you and the studio. And I walk down there to where some people sit, and they're going, come on, come on. I go in there, and they said, well, go on, let's get started. And I went, 
What do you mean? He said, well, let's go orchestra. <laughs> I said, Johnny Harris and the whole... Because they're all on charts, you see. So yes. it's not like you're going to do... You'll do run-throughs, but you're not going to... It's rehearsals. I had no clue that's what was going to come down. I didn't mm. know I had a full band orchestra. I mean, I was just blown away. Now, if ever you're going to get nervous, I know I don't care how old you are, that will be the time. <laughs> yes. That would definitely make you, uh, yeah, we better get this right, you know. So I just couldn't believe it. And they all started, the thing is, they did the intro of the song, and I started laughing. <laughs> I, I went, whoa, this is just the real deal, you know. I mm. mean, I thought, I thought Tom Jones was going to run out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because that was that whole same orchestra that did all those It's Not Unusual and all those great Tom Jones songs, you know. Amazing. Because as the 60s you know, was trucking on with great enthusiasm, and my God, so much changed. I mean, by 66, well, 67, you know, it's kind of termed as the yeah, summer, summer of love. Yeah, different thing, totally different thing. So the summer everything. of love, you know, in San Francisco, they had something in January, which was the gathering of the tribes with people like, I don't know, the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and right. Ken, uh, Allen Ginsberg. But then in the UK in July, I think it's July, in 69, they had the 14-hour Technicolor Dream with the at the Alley Pally with Pink Floyd and Arthur Brown and Yoko Ono. Did you also, as the tech, as that kind of cultural change started, did you, because you were at the sort of that age, did you sort of also kind of go with that sort of change? Yeah, right in the middle. <laughs> right. Yeah. The funny thing, but the one definitive thing that started to happen was that everybody was changing, right? Eric Clapton, right now, he's not in, in John Mayall's band. And, yeah, no, and uh, all of a sudden he got that group Cream yes. with Ginger Baker, who I knew from uh, Graham Bond's organization, which was a whole other kind of thing. That was like an R&B thing with Dick Extra Smith and Jack Bruce, right? Yeah. Ginger, Ginger and Jack, and he took Jack and Ginger and performed Cream. Totally different thing. Now we're talking a whole other ball game. And Steve Winwood left uh, Spencer Davis and formed Traffic. Yes. With Dave Mason and Jim Capaldi and that. So I knew all these guys, and, and I see all this this melting pot going on, and I'm hearing all this stuff from America, and I'm hanging out with Donovan a lot, who was a, was totally plugged into all of this from the songwriting point of view and everything. And uh, I'm looking at all of this going, this is all, this is a totally different deal, right? And uh, I'm going to read, have to read, think of what songs I'm writing and uh, and suddenly I started sort of drifting writing songs in a t total different way in a different direction you know yes. and uh, it got really good and then finally and then Eric asked me to with the cream they were just finishing off their whole deal by that you know, by 1978 right yeah. they did the farewell tour and he invited me to go on the tour in America now once I got over here and then I met the airplane in San Francisco and started hanging out with that. Look out, here we go. Everything went haywire. I saw, I saw what it was that was going on, you know. Yeah. I mean, did it, was it hard? I mean, because, you know, I wasn't there. I was, I was about four at the time. But, you know, like generally, yeah. there was, <laughs> yeah, there, 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 was the, there's a bit of alcohol, there's a little bit of a smoking, and then there's the sort of the, the whole kind of trip experience, you know, the, you know, Tim, 
Timothy Leary is going to tune in, turn on, drop out. Oh, yeah, no, no, I knew Tim. I know know all these people. But the thing is, is that uh, there was a whole thing that went down that that all those people, Timmy and uh, and Owsley, and that were working. They were at Berkeley University, and they were working in a legitimate uh, scientific chemistry la- laboratories that's, that's what they were studying is is uh is chemistry yeah. and they were studying a tr- actually an inside project on this this uh, thing called lysergic ditholamide which yes. they were kids they were using in um experimentation uh things which it wasn't hush hush it was just within um, mental institutions, people that had breakdowns and, and bad identity, mental situations, to I don't to, to help with with all sorts of insanity, which is uh, which quite frankly at this time, even from the time of Freud, they didn't really know anything about the workings of the mind. So all of this was totally experimental. But the trouble was with it. It is. It got out into the street in some bad ways. These chemicals and uh, Timmy and, and Owsley, they kept it inside. Right? Yeah. They were not letting all this get out to the public because it was not safe. Just like that. But there's certain people who I, I can't really sort of say uh, on the exactly who, but you know, some silly buggers to put it that way. <laughs> you know, who got got hold of it. Right, got it in the streets and started, you know, dosing people with it that were, which never been, it should never happen. So that all went haywire with the government. Then the government sort of started to, you know, go haywire. And uh, and Owsley and them said, look, this was supposed to be in a top secret sort of venture. Now you've gone and given it out to people, right? That's. You know, we're not working for the for the labs anymore. We're not. We drop. That's where the thing of dropping out came. They dropped out of the whole Berkeley situation. Yes. And these are people that have got masters and doctors and you know, very, very, very smart people, right? Yeah. So they just went out and they said, "Okay, well, if you're going to give it, we're going to turn the city on." So they started giving it to all their friends. And had these parties of these acid parties. Right? Oh, the Grateful Which Dead. Was, that, that was yeah, free fall there. So then, then it really went nuts. It got around all over the world. It got to England and uh, got to Cambridge University and all, <laughs> it got all over the place. And uh, that was that's really the the truth of what really happened. Because I know because. I, I spent a lot of time, and well, I still talked to Jack Cassidy and, uh, and the airplane, and and a lot of them guys who were very, very dear friends to me. I mean, they, when I was, they would come to America. They, we say in England, they take you on. They took me under their wing, as you might say. Right? Yes, I guess you, you know. And they the... looked after me and took care. I stay with them, and they made sure that you know, maybe that. Everything was okay, and you know, was the equipment okay for the gig? Because I was doing the Fillmore, right? Um, for Bill Graham, right? And it was it was all moving real quick, but they make sure I had the right amps, and they check on me all the time, and if you got the right hotel, and uh, 
you know, they they always they always, the ones that set me up staying at the Altamira in Sausalito, which is beautiful. God, right? I mean, now it's you can't even you know. <laughs> I think you have to book a room a year ahead there now. It's right in the, the other side of the bay in San Francisco. Right, just gorgeous. So they set me up all the time, and I did quite a few gigs with them, with them and the Dead. Right, right, and so... uh, amazing people. But very then when they came to England. We had a funny thing happen. You'd love this one. Is they'd done so much for me. They turn up in England to do. I don't. Yeah, I think it was Hyde Park, right? And uh, the airplane, I mean, right? So they got there, and somebody, when they all their gear turned up, I'm afraid somebody left it at the airport as it came through customs, and they didn't cover it. And you know, you know what our rain will do to anything. Yes. Well, a whole stack of Fender amplifiers. It'll do a right number on them. <laughs> they got soaked, ruined, the whole lot. Yes. All their gear was just soaked. So I get this phone call up in Cambridgeshire, where you know where I live, and he, and and and, uh, and it's Jack Cassidy and Yoma got freaking out, going, Terry, you know, God, we don't know what to do. Uh, we got, uh, we'll pay you anything you want monetarily. Anything, we'll pay you. And you're the only ones we know in England. I'm the only band that had a full complement of Super Showman Reverb Fenders and Twin Reverbs and all this Fender gear. And he said, if there's any way that you could get that down to London, we'll pay for everything. Uh, we'll forever be in your debt. So my dad sort of turned around and went, well, they've always been good to you. Get the lorry out. <laughs> we loaded all the Fender gear, right, all of it, and a bunch of Sound Cities and things, you know, and took it all to London, and, and they were able to do the Hyde Park gig. Right. God, that's so amazing. Just goes, I love that because my dad was right on it, even though these are all like Ashley Casuals. <laughs> my dad had called them. You know, my dad says, look, I don't care what they're doing. You know, they've been very good to you. And, uh, you know, we've got to take care of them. So, and Jack Cassidy still to this day will go on about that, about my dad, you know. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, so what, what yeah, made you... That was that was the sort of... Sometimes you get that camaraderie going. With English groups, you used to get that a lot, you know. Yeah. That one group would help another one out, and it was. I always felt real good about that when you could, when you did help somebody. You know what I mean? It's a good. It's, pay, it's, it's a, a good, good feeling to do that. You it's know, very calming. And you don't want anything for it because it'd be bugger me. It'd be too expensive to pay back for it, right? Yes, <laughs> you know? absolutely. And take the take the thing out of it. We've all yes, we've but they're all... lovely people. I tell you, Jack Cassie, salt of the earth. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and sort of, sort of, sixty-seven time, you you become a solo artist. Was that a big decision? To uh, what was the reason for the change between you know being in the band and then going solo? Well, well, solo. It wasn't necessarily. I put another band together. What it was is, is that I, I had a, I had a breakup with uh, Mickey Most as a producer, right? Uh, uh, the thing you were just talking about when everything changed, you know, and I said, like, The Cream and, uh, and Steve went with, uh, uh, put traffic together. And hanging out with all that gang, I saw how, wow, this is a lot freer. And we're not making singles anymore, like a, a pop record that's, you know, what's the single off the album and, uh, you know, that, or the single comes out first. We're not, not doing that now. Now you can actually get a 
a thread of continuity of your music, right? whether it be a ballad or it goes into something else, you can do a different, which you could call a concept album. Yes. That's what they started calling it. I don't know what that really meant. Right? <laughs> Because uh, most of most of the people who did them didn't have a clue, <laughs> right? But but you could record something in a in a in a, a continuous thing. There were some great albums like Sailor, the, the um, uh, uh, what's his name from from San Francisco. Uh, mm. I'll think of it in a minute. There's some great concept albums like that, and and you think of. Uh, Traffic's albums too, so I loved the idea of all that. You know, that that just I was more. Uh, you could write different kinds of songs. I never liked to be put in one pigeonhole, one kind of style. It's nice to try every all different things out. Right? Yes. You know, Steve Miller. That's who I was thinking of with Sailor. Right. right. And um, a lot of the, you know, you listen to them now. A lot of those albums stand up real well. There were some really good good ones. You know. Yes. So I moved into that, and I had a big war with Mickey Mouse. He wanted to do just uh, something totally different, you know. And uh, he, I don't know. We just didn't didn't we didn't agree on things. So I I split, and I put my own group together and started doing something different. Yes. You know, and then uh, and then we put an amazing group together that was part from America and part England. It was me and Alan White, God bless, who just we just lost last week. Right? Yes. You know? I know. And uh, and Lee Miles, it was me and Lee Miles and I who was reminding Tina Turner. So I finally got an R and B bass player that really oh, that was the the real deal. <laughs> well, unbelievable. He'd pound you to death, right? <laughs> unbelievable. And then Alan as well, and then David Lindley flew over who uh, who could play every instrument you could think of. So we, we had all that freedom to do any kind of music we wanted to do. And we had a lot of fun doing it, right, for for quite a while, you know. Yeah, and this is the world album Bang Bang. Yeah, that's before. Right. Bang Bang was, Bang Bang was the, the first band that I put together with Keith Webb and Peter Solly. Yes. Yeah. That was with Mickey Mouse, yeah. Yes, I know. Cause we it's... did two albums there with that. Then the one I was just talking about, we never, we didn't get to do an album of, for, you know, totally. It was bits and pieces on a, an album called River, right? You know? I know it well. Later on. Yes, that's the one. Because there's the classic, famous Glastonbury Festival, isn't there? Which was directed oh, by... Yeah, right. Which is the one where you have this amazing jam, which then features Linda Lewis. So can you? This is the seven. Is this the seventy-two Glastonbury Fair? Yeah, seventy-one, I think. Yeah, seventy-one. Oh, I wonder if it's the one that, that was they, the first one. That's yeah. the first one, which I'm not sure if, if that's the one. It has. It features people like Gong, Arthur Bryan, Melanie, isn't it? That's the one, isn't that's it? That's it. You got it. Yeah, and David Bowie. Uh, reading poetry and playing 12 string. At, yeah, at four <laughs> I o'clock on spent most of the day. Yeah, actually, I spent a lot of the day just hanging out with David because uh, I did. I'd met David a few times in that, and I was a lovely guy, absolute sweetheart. You could sit and talk to David. You'd start a conversation about next to nothing, and then two hours later, you're still talking about. You know, who knows where we're going now? I mean, I, he's the most interesting guy. Yeah. So, between him and Steve Winwood, because Traffic did it too, see? 
Yeah, yes, absolutely. So did, um, I mean, during that period, because I know there was also the art world was exploding, you know, performance art was quite the thing, wasn't there? I mean, did you, were you getting, because obviously the late 60s, things have got very excitable, haven't they? And and sort of a bit weird as well, because obviously they'd also... Tell me about it. Yeah. Yes, because there was a little bit of the kind of, like any party that kind of starts well and then it's a bit strange and then it ends not so great. And obviously, you know, there was the death of Jimi Hendrix. And I, Jim- lo- I, I love it. I love how you put it. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, everything got a little, uh, wait a minute, it's starting to dance really strangely. <laughs> yes, I know. What's going on, right? But how yeah, did you right. cope, kind of, because you were at that age where suddenly, you know, Jimi Hendrix dies, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones the year before. Then you had Altamont, and then you had the, you know, Charles Manson. So you know the drugs and things had started slightly turned a dark side into a, into a horrendous side, really. I mean, yeah, I had... know. Well, that's, it was awful. You see, I, yeah, I knew, see, I knew Jimmy Hendrix real well just before before he hit, you know, and and we were we were really good friends through that as well. And like you say, Janis Joplin, I knew really well too. And um, I didn't know Manson. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'll, 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 I, even if I did, I might say I didn't. But no, uh, you no. know, no, that was wicked. But I know everybody that was around and around that time, the you know, living here all these years, you hear people say, "Yeah, well, he came around my house one day, and I thought, this guy's a little dodgy. I don't know about this guy. He's, he's out there, you know." And looking back on it, yeah, you, you're not kidding. Right? Well, I always remember. Was, Neil, I always remember Neil Young said a very kind of vaguely funny thing in a slightly dark way. But he said because Charles was a kind of Charles Manson was a sort of a singer songwriter, wasn't he? Who who was desperately trying to get his music promoted, and then Neil Young said. He took rejection really badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Hitler did with his painting. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit like, yeah, it was a little bit. You know, there's one thing getting rejected. It's sort as well. of like, yeah, yeah. We, we're not. You're not going. To, you're not going to college anymore, right? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, so, um... uh, yeah, you did right there. He <laughs> took rejection really badly. Yeah. In Just... other words, he ain't got a freaking clue. <laughs> no, it <laughs> was know? a bit awful actually. So you, yeah. I know. I mean that. That's what which is very similar to Hitler, actually. Is that you know? Okay, so they think they they think they're good at it, but they'll go. I'll prove to them I'm good. Yes, because <laughs> what, what's quite interesting because with David, you know Bowie. I mean, who I think you know I absolutely love, but his sixties work is kind of quite hit and miss, isn't it? You know, he plays with R and B, he plays with folk stuff. He he's got a sort of an image which is neither one thing or the yeah, other. Trying to find his niche, yes. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't quite. He always said to me too. He said, "I'm not quite sure how I fit in." Yes. I said, "Well, you know where you fit in. You're in." <laughs> I said, "Everybody considers that you're in." I said, "You, you're the art representation of rock and roll." That's what I always called David. I said, "You're the art." Uh, representation. You represent the art of rock and roll and music from England. Because yeah. you think about it, he wasn't straight ahead R&B or rock and roll or anything. It was all very artsy, clever stuff. It wasn't jazz, right? No. It became its own thing, you know. I mean, he would to write songs and that, he had this thing of, of cutting out things from the newspaper and putting them on the floor and moving all the words around, right? Yes. And, um, which is, I mean, which I thought was, 
I, I tried doing it. I didn't get anywhere with that. <laughs> it didn't work for me. It just was a bunch of nonsensical bloody rubbish, but it really worked for him. Yeah. You know? I mean, it was just kind of interesting, that transformation. But then you, you also went from that kind of 60s period into the 70s, where there's a new group of 16 to 18-year-olds who suddenly right. the musical landscape changes and you're sort of playing at Glastonbury Festival. And obviously, you know, it's captured magically on that film. You know, everybody yeah. watches it and is amazing. So had you had you known Linda? We're there, you know, we're there again in, couple, in a couple of weeks. I do. Right? I saw, I saw yeah. it there. And, and it's I no, it's gonna. It's gonna be a trip. We're not on the, the pyramid stage. It doesn't matter. But <laughs> it'll be. It'll be really. Uh, it'll be really interesting to go back again. You know. And it's, well, they yes. were trying to do the fiftieth year, but COVID obviously. You know that they, you weren't allowed to do anything. So, but um, this is basically the fiftieth anniversary, as far as I'm concerned. Fifty second. Yeah. And how, and can you remember? I mean, you mentioned being with David that day, but can you remember much about the performance and the general vibe? Because it does look like a very loved up experience, doesn't it? Well, it was. Well, the first of all, our thing was. Uh, <laughs> I still joke about it. I mean, now you can you can talk about it a bit easier because. Uh, you know, all the thing of smoking a joint isn't a big deal these days. I, 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 think... I mean, it's still not legal in England, I know, but, you know, I mean, it, it was very touchy at the time. But yes, but, but I can, we, see, I can see... Much, like, everybody that went to Glastonbury, the whole idea was you could go there and do what you, how, you wanted in a field. I thought that was the idea of a festival in the first place. You could do what your dad wouldn't let you do or something, you know. Right? That's right, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so everybody was there doing all sorts of stuff, right? So we go to go on stage, and there was a big joint that we'd rolled. Yes, we were gonna we were gonna roll uh, smoke this before we went on. And uh, if you look at when you watch the, the the movie they came out with, right, it looks like some bloody drug ad. You know, <laughs> I'm out there playing in the front, you know, starting the song off. But what was supposed to happen was we were supposed to pass the joint around a couple of times, then go on and play. Well, the guy goes, come on, we're late, come on, go on. So I start playing. Alan's got the joint. He He's smoking away. He's going, yeah, it's good groove, yeah. He's listening to me and, yeah, he ain't playing anything, yeah, right? <laughs> and he's just sitting there with his joint. He takes another one. Then he passes it to Lee. And I keep turning around and going, well, where's it going? Right? And then it went there. Then Lee passed it to somebody on the side of the stage. He never came back round to me. <laughs> I'm playing, going, oh, well, that's the end of that, right? Okay. So off we went, and then we did the set. But it's really funny, you know. It's a, it is a classic of its moment because, it, you know, people are fiddling with wires and they're sort of getting set up. Oh, and... yeah, you know, I mean, nothing was working right, you know. It's just like, get on with it, you know. I mean, I've never, every first festival I've ever done, if anything all went perfectly right, I think, I would get very nervous. Yes, absolutely. I, mean, it's, you, you, I know it sounds a little pompous, but the, if you if this sort of stuff crackling a bit and not going exactly right, you, you, there's a comfortability about that. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, you know, as long as it doesn't blow up, right? But as long as it's somewhat working. Yes, because I think... Because you, you, you know, at a festival, you never get a run-through or a check 
sound check at all. You know, you never get that because yeah. it's one after another and it wastes too much time. See. So what so, happens to because Lee is the guy Miles, isn't he on bass? Yes. Yeah. So where did you fight? Because he start, you know, he's absolutely got the groove with Alan. Um, oh man, no, he's he's on fire. He still is. He's no worse now than he was then. Right. <laughs> no, I talk to him all the time, man. He's a he's a full fledged brother. I tell you, he's a. I've known him all my life, you know. But we first time I saw him. You see, I did, the first tour I did, that one we were talking about with the Stones, right, when I was 15, is with I Can Tina Turner Review, which is a whole busload, a whole load of people. It's got to be 26, 27 people in that, that whole honorage, right? Yeah. And uh, it's just... Well, the, he had um, a guy, Junior, Ike, Ike's cousin, I think his nephew. No, it was Ike Turner's nephew was playing bass. And he was this young guy. I think he's only about nineteen, twenty, and he was just killer. This young guy playing bass. I went, man, I'd give anybody to have a, anything to get a bass player in my band like that. Well, they came after that too. A couple of years later, they came back to England to do um, some gigs in England. I think they did the Albert Hall and a couple of things. And they played a club called the Revolution Club. The a uh, friend of mine, Jim Carter, favourite, right? Yeah. He had the speakeasy and all them cops, right? And blazes and things. So Jim he, he, he gave, Jim called me and says, I just got a call from uh, Ike Turner and he wants you to do the gig with him here at the Revolution Club next week. I mean, I said, what, next week? It was like a last call thing. Yes. And uh, they wanted a, 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 a group to be a support for the the night. And he goes, get Terry. You want Terry? It's so funny. <laughs> it's like I went, uh, it's funny how, you know, I mean, I thought they forgot all about me. <laughs> so, you know, I, I mean, I was just honoured to be on the on the tour with them in the first place, right? Uh, but they're so they're such sweet people. I mean, I've known them all my life, you know. So they, they get me down there and we were having a ball. Before the gig started, we started at, what, one in the afternoon, and they were doing sound checks, and then we were going over all what happened in '65 with the Stones, and and uh, and going on and on and on, you know, just having a party. Yes. And then we turned around and went, "Oh, we're going to do the gig." So they got up and played, and there's this bass player playing with them called Lee Miles. And I took one look and listened, and my jaw dropped. I went. Oh my God! This guy is unbelievable. This is like another another cat, right? Who's just amazing. So, I talked to him afterwards and everything, and we get on with same age and that. So we we get on real good. And um, then later on, they were in London, and I asked him. I said, "Look, if if you ever feel like you know you don't want to play with Ike, are you locked into playing with Ike?" I said, "I'm putting this band together. I would love to. You know, man, you'd." You'd be it. We could put our own group together. And he said, let me think about that. So next thing he gave me a call, and he left like Antina. He left them. Wow. Which is not easy to do, because oh. it's that, you know, he, he, they, he, I didn't like the idea. You know? <laughs> that, well, funnily enough, just before that, I could ask me if I would be interested in joining his review. Nice. <laughs> On guitar and singing. I, which I mean, sounded totally strange to me. Yeah? We wanted an English guy in his band, but, you know, it's a big, big band, that whole thing, but it meant touring all over the state. I don't know, and that, that Greyhound bus tour 
sort of scared me a little. <laughs> you know. Yes. All that. So, so Lee ended up picking up, quitting, and come, came to England and lived with me for three, three, four years. You know. God, that's amazing. And when did I you... know it was? She, like you said, it was just the root of this whole conversation. Is things were really changing. You know. Yeah. Everybody was kicking it up a notch, spreading out a bit, playing, being a lot more worldly and uh, listening. I always listen to jazz. I mean, I always love my jazz. I got cut from Coltrane to, to Miles Davis to Dizzy Gillespie. I was always steeped into that. Yes. You know, all different kinds of jazz. Yeah, from the beginning, that's what I really love. And, and Jimmy McGriff and Richard Groove Holmes and Jimmy, Jimmy Smith and all that. that, that that's where I really sort of love the stuff I loved early when I was like 14, 13, 14, right? Nice. I have a big jazz collection right back then. And I didn't think much of it until I started hanging out with a lot like Steve Winwood and a lot of people and realizing they got all the same records. <laughs> Amazing. You know? Yes, absolutely. You and when have d- this one. Oh, you've got to get this one, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and when did you sort of um sort of talk to Linda or Lewis to be kind of guesting on vocals on, on that particular did not. It was a total you see, that's what everybody says. Well, how did you plan that with Linda? Did not. Linda was there, got excited, and everybody had had a couple of whatever they fancied, you yes. know, <laughs> and that could mean anything. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what she took, but anyway, but um, we still laugh about it. I just got an email, funnily you should say that, I just got an email from her. She said, let's get together and do it again. I won't go as crazy this time, she said, <laughs> in the email she just sent me, right? Fantastic. So I'm going to try and see if I can get together on one of the London gigs. Yeah. Oh, that would be special. Yeah, come and sing. Jersey, we don't have to do that frenetic mess. We could do something together serious. She said, we could do something really tuneful and serious this time. I thought, <laughs> oh, well... You mean we've grown up, you mean? <laughs> yes, well, uh, you know. well, she adds that vocal, I suppose, a bit like, you know, the, the Ronan Stone song, isn't it? Um, it's yeah. just a shot away where, um, you know, I can't remember. Yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those things, it's go for it. You know, we, we both got on and we're, doing, we're going backwards and forwards between each other. It's a total ad lib. But that's, that's that jazz kind of thing, you know. I mean, you, things were getting where you could do that. You yes, know, and when did you, you... get a real... Mind you, that band behind me are just pounding. I mean, if you didn't take off on that, you wouldn't go anyway. No, <laughs> I know, God, that would, you really did have the best grooves on that one. Yeah. Where, so it was a boiling hot day. Just one thing on that. Where did the hat come from? Oh, the hat, right. <laughs> That's Mike Evis's big peeve. Every time I talk to Mike, he says, did you ever get another one of them hats? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I've looked to try to find one. I mean, I'd give anything to find another one. No, right. what it was, it was, it, was a, it was a German Second World War desert issue, uh, desert campaign hat. Right. Because in the desert, whether you know, you know desert or not there, is in the daytime you've got these sandstorms like you know that bloody kill you. So that big leather, it's a big le- thick leather peak on it, right? right? It's real long, and you can pull that peak and just look out the corner of it a bit, you yeah. know, if you're driving some vehicle, right? And the wool, the sheepskin on the top of it, it's as at night in the desert, it's freezing. Yeah, it I drops, can drops from 110 degrees down to like 20, you know. Yes. 
So they, the, the Germans always had all these incredible uniforms. I mean, well, they were made by the, the designer Hugo Boss, correct? <laughs> yes. No, that's, that's but, who made all the German uniforms was Boss. Yes, I know. You know? Yeah. Yes. So he's still the biggest, one of the biggest designers around. I, you know, hey, you know. I know. They just they were fantastically made uniforms, right? But... Uh, uh, that's where I got it in a, an antique store. I saw it and I fancied it. And then when I looked inside, there's a swastika inside. I went, oh, okay. So I did a bit of research as to exactly what it was, you know. Yes. Interesting. You know, you don't know what happened to it in the end. Nah, somebody stole it. A lot of stuff, you know. You, you put things down backstage or you take something off to wipe your brow, it's gone. Yes, <laughs> it's always tricky. I got so a, then lot, did... a lot of stuff. You know. Yeah, did you then relocate to America to record the river? Uh, river? Yeah, well, what, ha- what happened was we were at a point, I was, I'd signed to uh, Armour Ertigan, uh, Atlantic Records, okay, yes. to do this album, River, and the thing was, is it, we'd been together, the band had been together a while, and ironically, a funny thing started happening was, different things started to happen, is David Lindley got offered... Well, Jackson Brown had a number one record. He's been hanging out with us at England, and uh, he he got an, an album coming out, and uh, this Doctor My Eyes went to number one, right? Yes. And he was he was best friends with David Lindley, right? So, and uh, then Alan White joined Yes. Yes. Right, right, and Eddie Offord was producing the album. <laughs> right? Who's Yes's producer? Right. So all of a sudden, in a period of a week, this all happened. Nobody knew each other's business, really, until we got together and said it. I said, that's how it goes sometimes. So David says, well, what should I do? And I said, look, you you can't stop things happening. Things happen, whatever. And so it was me and and Lee Miles left back there again up in Cambridgeshire when it was snowing. I remember that. Standing there, you know, going... What the hell happened? <laughs> we had a great group there. They was just, it just evaporated, right? So Armour called me. That's the kind of, you see, the, the, the kind of people that Armour Ergen is, you won't get that anymore. He calls me up and he goes, yeah, I heard, man. Hey, shit. He said, now, Jackson's on Atlantic. And he said, I heard that Lenny's come over to go on tour with, with Jackson. He goes, shit. I said, where's that man? He said, after all that work, he said, look, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. I said, well, I am. <laughs> I said, we don't have a group. He said, nah, don't worry about that. He said, you know where you're always going on? You love all these R&B players in the States and these R&B musicians. And, and he mentioned a bunch of names because, you know, I love to sit and talk to Armour. He knows all of them, man. Yeah. Uh, well, he, he started with Ray Charles. You know, he, come on. So, and he said, don't worry about it. You and Lee, come on over here. I'll get your house, get you somewhere to live, I'll give you some money. So you don't you don't have to work or do anything for a while. I want you to come and drop in, right? Get out of that snow. You said freezing to death. Damn, man. Get over here. And, and I'll get you. I says, I've been checking it out. He says, and Aretha, <laughs> and there's only one, Aretha. <laughs> Aretha said, Tom Dowd would be a great producer for you. He said, you know Tom Dowd, right? I went, are you kidding Tom Dowd? He said, he said, yeah, he'd love to do it. He said, Aretha said it was a great idea. What do you think? He said, but he said, chill out for a while, and then we'll get Tom in, 
we'll get together and and hang out a bit, you know, and talk about what to do, you know, pick some songs and and, and some musicians that you like, except most of the ones you know. (laughs) And so I end up with Fred Wesley on trombone, you know, from James Brown. Yes. You know, I mean... And Blue Mitchell, all these, now, look out, now I'm in the middle of all, which is what I loved in the first place. I moved to the States through it, and we start putting together, and I got David Lindley to come in and play on some things, and James Gadson on drums, and Soko Richardson from Ike and Tina on drums. I've, I've been, I'm, I'm cut. I thought I died and gone to heaven. <laughs> you know. That was it. Was uh, that was it? Funny and how sometimes a mistake can be your salvation. You yes, know? and did the band sort of come together really smoothly at that stage? Oh yeah, yeah. No, the guys turn up. We did a couple of. Yeah, a lot of the times we just uh, kick the song around a few times, go and have lunch, come back and cut the track. Amazing. That was it. These guys, you know, like you get gads and amuse people. I mean, he was Marvin Gaye's drummer for a long time, you know. So they used to just get somebody having an idea and building on it, and then, uh, yeah, that'll do. Let's let's yeah, let's record it. (laughs) It's no big deal, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the track Dean is just kind of genius, isn't it? I mean, it's such a beautiful. Yeah, it's great, you know. I mean, all these things are just like, yeah. So some of it we'd cut in England, Right. right? So some of it's with Alan White on drums. And then when we got to the States, some of it was Soko Richardson and James Gadsden, see? Yes. And, um, on dr- Dutch drums, you know. The, all, of it, all of it is Lee Miles on bass, right? <laughs> he's, the, he's the key to the whole thing. Yes. Know? But then, I mean, it's kind of an interesting time because obviously <clears throat> music's starting to change and you mentioned, yes, there, where the prog rock world happens and then you had, you know, like Black Sabbath with their kind of debut album, so heavy rock, and then you get the glam yeah. rock and then, you know, there's disco and chart music. So did you sort of find yourself wondering where you fitted into this kind of musical kind of... Yeah, I, the, the, at that point when things... You see, yeah, like we said, where we got to just before your conversation of get to traffic and things, and yes, now we've got concept albums, we've got this, that, yeah, okay. Now that's all changing now, like you're saying, and it's going to something totally different. You know, it's going to disco. Now, wait a second here, you know. Yes. I mean, I knew I knew Barry Gibb, and I know, I know Maurice, and, and I knew them guys in the first day when they did that album, Holiday. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know, all those early, that was a great album, that first Bee Gees album, right? But it's nothing to do with when it all went disco. That's a totally different concept. And they're all R&B players, all of that whole thing in there, right? I know, singing about so mining when that disasters. All happened, that, that was not my deal at all. I mean, I love R&B, but that... Disco's not really, that's not that thing. Yes, absolutely. So I figured I'll stick to what I'm doing. I'll write songs, how I like to write songs. And I was living up in the mounts here in in California. And I liked it up there. It's away from everything. And uh, there was no point living in the city. I mean, I've been just living in the cities all of my life, and then, oh, let's go and do some work, and you go to cities. So you see enough cities. Why, why go and live in one at that point, right? Yeah. I was trying to just get away because 
And when I was at home, I had a house in the countryside, and I got far more done out there. If I was in town, I'd just end up going out part, you know, hanging out with somebody, or <laughs> you don't get anything done, right? Yes. Have a lot of fun, but so I lived up in this, and I, I wrote a whole slew of songs. Some that I still got that I did that I haven't done, you know. Yeah, because um, the songs you got on Seed of a Mem- Seed of Memory. Um, that's, that's what that was. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean they're particularly beautiful lyrics and and musical arrangement. It's kind of it's kind of perfection, isn't it? I mean, were were you in a particularly focused state of mind? Because there's things like yeah, yeah, well it. It was, I got more focused with, you know, working with my friend Graham Nass, you know. I mean, I'd known him since the, uh, like when we were mentioning in uh, East Anglia, you know, Ramsey Gaiety and uh, Boston Glider Drive. <laughs> well, I know Graham from in the Hollies way back there when they had Carousel at number one, you know. Yes. So I've known, I've known Graham all the way through all that and still do. Yeah. Right? And so he, I, I had all these songs, and then, like you just said, how do you fit into this? I said, yeah, do you think they'll buy it? <laughs> and I've got all these songs. What am I going to do with them? So I always respected Graham's opinion. He, he wouldn't lie to me. So uh, I, I said, look, you know, I've got all these songs. I have no clue if they really are relevant or what. I have no clue. So... What do you think? If I send them to you, will you listen to them and then just give me, you know, I know you'll tell me the truth if I'm barking up the wrong tree or or what I'm doing. And he called me back and he said, well, he said, how about we make an album? I went, but with what, what, with these songs? He said, absolutely. He said, I love them. Okay, I love the songs, right. Okay. He said, I've got a plan already. So he says, I'll produce the album, right? You sing, I'll get you all the musicians and you want, and it'll be great. He said, I hear everything, what the songs need, and uh, he says, and I can get you a deal with ABC Dunhill. Mm. I went, huh? This is all one conversation, right? He said, yeah, I've already talked to him. No problem. We got it all sorted. Uh, when do you? When would you like to start on it? I said, "Well, about tomorrow." <laughs> you know, gee, are you serious? He said, "Look, come on down. We'll hang out for a bit, and uh, you know, we'll get into it, and then we'll go from there. And, and uh, it'll be fun. We'll have a ball, you know." Yes. And we did. I must admit, it was the most fun I've ever had making, being in the studio and doing anything. It was a breeze. There was no effort whatsoever, and. And, and all the musicians and everybody knows each other, so it was just, yeah, it was fantastic. Because the atmosphere Great. and, you know, listening to it, I mean, it reminds me of that kind of those classic, you know, Joni Mitchell period and, and uh, Carole King and, you know, those kind of very sort of, I don't know, sensitive or deep singer-songwriters. Yeah, well, all those people, Joan, Joni and everybody, all the, everybody was around anyway, yeah. right, and Crosby. And uh, and everybody and Steve Stills and uh, so everybody's popping in all the time and because I know all them for ages anyway. But it's uh, it did yeah it was that atmosphere and then uh, like Ben Keith on pedal steel like uh, a couple of them tracks is Ben Keith and Al Perkins who's a really well known Nashville pedal steel player and it, Ben is he, he, Ben is your you know, Neil Young, all the Neil Young stuff, you know, that just that singular following the vocal thing, you know, yes. singular lines. And then Al Perkins is that symphonic orchestral pedal steel. So 
it was like having an orchestra. It was, yes. It was really great. And with, with the sort of the title track of the album, was that a particularly... What sort of mood were you in at the time when you were writing that? Because it seems like a sense of longing or passing of time or something that seems quite, you know... It's got a romantic... Well, me- you mean the song Cedar Memory? Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, mm. I, when I do it on stage, a lot of the times I'll, I'll dedicate it to all our warriors and, and uh, all the services and people. It's a song of... It's a gentle song of war, but with the, the, based on a legend aspect, you know, like the, the phoenix rising from the ashes, which I think is either Greek or, or Roman. Uh, it's back to Greek mythology of, of the, the, you know, the battle finishes and out of the fire rises the phoenix of, of, of humanity, right? you know. So... That's what it's really based on, and because that whole thing of we'll never do it again, no, never be another war. No, I, I look after the Second World War, and I said, no, 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 just give them a little time. <laughs> <laughs> the Germans weren't happy anyway, but it doesn't have to be them. And look what happens, you know. You know? Yes, well, yeah. there's yes, we we always say things like we'll never forget, and then you think, mm, I think no, never do it again, no, no, and then next thing you know, right. We'll, we'll I mean, learn. the one thing that was ironic is that, you know, our, our uh, what was it, the Ukrainians, uh, was, uh, the, the Russians were celebrating the the end of the Second World War and getting rid of the Germans, right? And at the same time, they're shelling the hell out of the Ukraine. I mean, I fucking had going to myself, I, I don't know how you get up in the morning and tell yourself that this is a really cool thing to do. It's it's really good for relationships around the world. It's going to end well. Politics has gone nuts, you know. Yes, it's not. It's not good. But then, once that album comes out, and you must have felt like, wow, that's that is kind of one of a a masterpiece. Which I think it's probably you know because of time. You know, people are still discovering it and listening to it, so it does stand up to that. um, I suppose critical kind of analysis. But but what do you sort of then do next? Because obviously, it, it does. It's it's quite a few years before. Well, the, the thing that was, you know, that it wasn't only the groups changing and things. There was a, in in California, not that in England one would know, is that a lot of the, this was the beginning of the demise of what what was known as called the record company. Yes, as it was known, right? Is things were moving after disco. Uh, there was an internal thing going on, whereas record companies were going, you know what, the internet, we hadn't really got a full internet, but you could, you know, you could send messages and and things. It was getting with the computer, with the message situation, and uh, emailing and things, that you could spread the word easily in this computer age, and that's right when disco happened, right? Because it's all very, it's all electronic. So what was happening? The record companies are going. Well, you know what? We don't really have to pay, spend all this money supporting artists and backing them up and paying for their tour and doing all this, unless we have a guaranteed hit record. If we see that there's a record that's charting and we cannot deny it, then we'll get behind it. Or what we'll do is. It developed into not 
having a record company at all, the band, like the, the group or their management, have making their own record company, making the record, and then using, say, for instance, Universal, Warner Brothers, yada, yada, um, all of the major labels, using that as a distributor. Because the way it worked before, it was the record company using... Warner Communications as a distribution unit, that's how they got everything in the stores, and they own the stores, or uh, that's how things got around, like like most businesses in marketing, mm. anything, right? So all the record company thing just disappeared. So ABC Dunhill that I'd done Seed America with were going to fold the two people, Jerry Rubenstein, and I forget the other guy's name. Anyway, they were big business people in L.A., big lawyers, right? So they left, and uh, Dunhill folded, and they went on their own. So they didn't start a record company. They just went on their own in yes. the business. Uh, so I was left with a, a, a two weeks into that record, and it was it was – Charting on all different, um, like, country stations and R&B stations. It was really off the wall. And they, could, they do, couldn't quite figure out what to do. So they passed it on. And they said, no, no, we can't. I don't know what it's going to do. And then they sold the company to Irv Azoff, who was the Eagles manager. Right, and, yeah. Who was working with MCA at Universal. See, they all, this is that conglomerate move thing where everything was getting folded into things. Yes, and it's coming. So I get a call one day from Irv, because I know Irv ever, you know, with the Eagles and all that. So he says, uh, yeah, hi, Terry. He said, oh, he said, yeah. He said, yeah, I just got that album of yours, Cedar Mary. He said, I love that album. I said, well, then why don't you put it out? Because <laughs> now he owns it because he bought ABC Dunhill. Yes. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't put it out. Mm. That's always puzzled me why he wouldn't put it out. That's he certainly good... loves it, but <laughs> yeah, he likes to keep things on shelves. He also owns the absolute John Coltrane collection, oh. all of it. The whole, the, it's like, I don't know, 60 records, right? I know that because I went in the cupboard and got a whole, got more before I left ABC Dunhill. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> I got the key. I thought, well, I'm going to get something out of this. So <laughs> I got all of John Coltrane's uh, uh, records, right? Yeah. So who so who kind of owns your masters of that album now? Uh, Universal now. MCA. Mm. Well, it was MCA, and then it's... Uh, but the umbrella company is Universal. Right. You'll find if you look down the list there, which I'm sure you know more about this than me anyway, mm. but uh, just so we're on the same page, is uh, Universal own... They're the only existing like record company within a, a distribution unit, right? They're enormous. They've bought most of all the smaller companies up. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because, They're enormous, right? Yes, it's a very complicated world, isn't this? This record. <laughs> so do it is when you're in the middle of the bugger, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean. So I went. Oh well, I don't know. And then Capital offered me a deal, and I thought, well, okay. Well, we did see the memory, and that's that kind of thing. Uh, I fancy playing a bit of rock and roll there, so I went totally left and did this full-on blasting rock and roll uh, uh, record, like this Rogue Waves album, right? yes. which Capital didn't know what to do with that. So whatever, you know. Yes. As long as you, as long as you do something, you know. And then I thought after that, well, I'll, 
I'll just uh, kick back for a while and write and, and see what happens next. Yes. <laughs> so, so I mean, that's God. That's so. Was that just to clear, clarify? Was that Herb Albert who you said had your catalogue, or was that somebody else? Maybe? No, Irv Azoff. Oh, uh, Azoff. Yeah, he's the manager of the Eagles. Right. Of course. Yes. Of course. I always I show where people say, "Yeah, I know Irv." I said, "Yeah, you're that big tall guy." And they go, right, yeah. I said, no, you obviously don't know him. He's only about 5'4". <laughs> <laughs> you know how people say they know people, you know yes, what I mean? Right? Just, uh, yes, just, yes. Right. But, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I I respect Herb Azoff as a manager, like, above most. I mean, if if you were in, if, if you, he was your manager, boy, yeah, I'm telling you, uh, you, you wouldn't, you know, he'd go, go to bat for you, right? <laughs> Yes. That's that's the big league, but they're great, you know. And because I'm real good friends with Joe Walsh and, and and Henley and all them, so I know I know all of the workings, how that all happened, and it's magnificent, you know. A great group came out of it, so it's worth it, you know. Incredible, yes. So then, how do you? Because 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 you also, I mean, at that stage, I know a few artists got really caught out. With it, there was the punk, you know, it was obviously prog rock, and then there was a bit of heavy, and then there was punk, which kind of really kind of confuses yeah, right. people. Yeah. And then, and then, sort of after you know the your, your sort of seventy nine album, um, was that Rogue Rogue Waves? Then, yeah. then it's kind of the eighties. Is it a period that you're sort of re- residing? You know, you're living in America and just writing and playing, kind of. Yeah, I've been, but I've been here since I've been in the, in the state living here since nineteen seventy two. Yes, right? and was yeah, that... But what happened then is is uh, I hooked up with a, a friend I'd known years ago, who used to be the entertainment director at Loughborough. Yeah, Loughborough University, well, Loughborough Polytechnic, I think it was. Mm. Right? <laughs> and we would do gigs there all the time, right? And he was the entertainment director. And ironically enough, his, bro- his brother I'd worked for for years, it was uh, Harold Davidson. Yeah. Right? I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, Harold no. Davidson was with the, probably the biggest promoter in Lon- out of London, the Kinks. You name it. I mean, all of the I mean, every group. I mean, God. And, and he represented me, too. And his brother, Rob Dickens. Yes. Instead of Barry Dickens, the Howard, Davi, Howard Davidson organization, he, 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 the guy's name was Barry Dickens. And he's still around, right? Great guy. Great promoter, right? He was an agent, right? Now, his, his younger brother was the entertainment director of Love, right? So all these years down the road, now we're talking 80s now, yes. I get a phone call. I'm living up in Laurel Canyon, right? And uh, I get a phone call, and he says, hello, Terry, it's Rob Dickens. And I go, yeah, I got Rob Dickens, Rob Dickens. I know that name. I, know. Oh, I feel terrible. God, I know that name so well. Why do I hear it? He says, yeah, you don't remember, do you? No. He says, I'm, I'm the guy that used to pay you all that money at Loughborough University. And I went, but Loughborough, now it clicked, right? Yes. I said, you mean Barry's brother? He says, I don't talk to Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went, oh, God, here we go with that brother shit now, right? You know, yes. okay. So I said, God, how are you doing? He said, well, I called you. Do you want to make an album? I went, huh? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to. He said, do you have any material? I said, I have a lot of material. I've got a studio in the house up here in Logan. And I play a bunch of tunes. If you like them, we'll go. He said, I'll I'll come up. And I said, well, when do you want to come up? He said, how about now? I said, well, 
where are you? He says, I'm at the bar- I'm on Sunset Boulevard at the bottom of, you- of Laurel Canyon. I went, oh, well, come on up. He said, right, OK. So he- next thing, 15 minutes later, he knocks on the door. We sit down, I play him a bunch of songs. He said, piece of cake. Let's do an album. He's the head of We Are Water Brothers in England. Right. I <laughs> Oh, you're not at love for an hour, eh? <laughs> he said, no, I graduated. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. And that was back in the what, 70s, right? Early 70s, late 60s, 70s, right? And all that time in East said, I've always had a bee in my bonnet. I always wanted to make a record for you, for whatever. He said, okay, hits and that and everything, and I know, and all that, and disco, and now it's boy, now it's boy bands, right? I yes. said, well, I, I'm, I know I'm, I'm too old to be in a boy band. No, yeah. that's not going to happen. I, I don't have any brothers, and I'm an only child, so they ain't going to work. So. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so we anyway, so he said, well, look, we'll pick a, get a producer. And the one thing he did, he wanted Trevor Horn uh, because of the techno aspect, and now we're in this age, we're in the techno aspect now. now you know, We're going to make a digital record. So he said, do you have anything about I said, look. You're the boss. You're going to put all this money up. I'll go with you. Yeah, I'm up for making a, a digital album. As long as, as long as I'm singing and they're not going to just put, hit everything I do with the vocoder, I, <laughs> I'll be all right, you know. Now it's a bit dangerous because he, he, uh, you sing four notes and they put you through that machine to pitch it, you know. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, we made the album, The Driver, you know, which was a, which was a good album, you know. But... For some reason, that they didn't get on that. We had uh, we had a, one song they were going to put out as a single, "The Whole of the Moon," the Water Boys, because it never it never charted, but it was played like hell on the radio, as you know, right? Yes. You know, when it was out, but it never was a hit. So he'd pick songs that you know were were always played a lot, but never charted. That way, you got that potential there. So we just got about to release it as a single. Yeah, we're back to singles again, haven't we? We've yeah. done a full circle here, right? You know. So we're about to put it out, and Chrysalis, right, got got wind of that we were going to put it out as a single on Warner Brothers, and they they Russ released uh, a best of hits album of the Water Boys and put what Hold the Moon out as a single. Ah. Right. Yes. Somebody, somebody fucking said it. You know, I don't know who who said it, but Ter- Terry Ellis, that's who it was. It, yeah, uh, Chrysalis, right? Who I know real well, but that don't help, you know. And uh, they put it out, and it went to number two in the charts. Oh. Uh, uh, but that's that's the record business, you know. God, that is frustrating. I'm going to say, if you if you if you don't you don't expect all these things happening. For God's sake, don't even get it start. Don't even get involved in it. I know. It's kind you, of... never, you never know. I know all these sound like tragedies, but they're actually building blocks on on who you are. And yes. what you do is what you do. You know, I mean, it's not, nothing's really bad, it's you know? Just, it's just, a, yeah. It's, it's all just... activity. Yeah, but you did you did another cover, cover, you know, Give Me Some Loving, which was also on a soundtrack, the Tom Cruise movie. That's right, movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Days yeah. of Thunder. So there was a little yeah, bit Yeah, I that. know. Well, that all went wrong for Tom Cruise. I mean, he was pissed off about that because he had this big thing, and I don't know, because he's a Scientologist, I don't know if it's anything to do with that, but he had this big thing when AIDS, that's right when AIDS was being really misunderstood, you know. Yes. Is that 
Oh, you could shake somebody's hand and get AIDS, right? You know, everybody got the shit. Everybody was getting really nervous, right? So, and in, in, he was trying to tell a story, but it didn't work. The, I don't know if you know the story. It was a race car driver who got in a really bad accident on the, you know, as you can, going 200 miles an hour, right? You know, <laughs> poor guy. And he was really messed up. And he had to give him a blood transfusion. And, and the blood was contaminated in the AIDS. Right. And the trouble was, everybody, you know, all those firecracker guys from Atlanta and all them guys on their uh, hardcore top fuel or, you know, Formula One or uh, Formula cars, you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, yes. Stock cars, right? They were stock cars. Uh, all them are like good old boys, you know, and... Uh, you know, there wasn't any understanding about AIDS. So they all like looking at this car driver like, hey, yeah, sure, right? Yeah, the blood transfusion, right? All right, yeah, it was it. And it was really messed his life up. And he, here he is trying to recover from a bloody serious car accident. So Tom got a hold of this whole thing, and they, that's what the movie was about. But when it got to the, they, they filmed it, did spent millions of dollars as they usually do. Got Hans Zimmer doing all the music, right? So when they finally got to promote in the film, I think it was Universal. Yeah, it was Universal. Universal turned around, or Warner Brothers, I forget which way. They turned around and went, nah, I don't think so. The way it was going with AIDS, it was, they weren't going to be able to sell the public on it. Right, right. yes. It just wasn't going to happen. So they, they, they literally, yeah, this can happen too. It's not just albums. They killed the movie. Yes. Shut it down. So it was funny because I had some interesting conversations with Hans Zimmer about it because we spent a bunch of time. There's a couple of tracks on that album. The last track on the album called Days of Thunder is I wrote the night before. I wrote all the lyrics and the tune uh, over some uh, incidental music that Hans had written. I've, it's the most expensive backing back track I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor Horn came up. He said, "Look, this is just a, you know a backing track that Hands put together. It's not it's not mixed. It's just you know yeah." And he puts it on my big speakers. I left the planet. I went, "You you are pulling my leg, right? <laughs> just an unmixed backing track." I said, "Holy shit!" I said, "I've never heard anything like that." He said, "Yeah, well, you got to write a song on it." So. I stayed up all night, wrote the song, went in the studio the next day and cut it. So if you listen to the album, that's what it is. I did it the next day, right? I'm really, geez, I'm really proud of it because it's a balls-to-the-wall song and it's got all these changes and I really nailed it, right? And Hans, just, he was dancing in the studio. <laughs> he was having a ball. So it was great. It was good just for the fact of working with these real pros like Hans Zimmer and... And just the association with Hans, who's a yeah, real pro, you know. Yes. I mean, it, it's just like the Mars Project in that studio. You cannot believe the equipment. I mean, it's NASA. You walk. I walked into the booth, and and it's up to the ceiling in rack gear and computers. I've never seen so much digital equipment. It's just like the Apollo mission. I, it's unbelievable. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, then I know it's, it's a whole other world. You see, so. I mean, God, now all that shit's got smaller. <laughs> I know, you can do it all on your phone, can't you? But then in you the... know what I mean? That's, yeah, that's scary. I, like to, I actually like to see it all stacked to the ceiling. I like yes. That. 
you're not going to be a heart, but there you go. You know, I mean, yes, you're not going to accidentally sort of, I don't know, do something that someone, yes, you know, you, you can yeah. see knobs and things flashing. But then in the oh, 90s, you know, yeah, oh, flashing colored, oh, color, I love colored lights, Jesus, like a bloody, the whole place was like the biggest Christmas tree you ever saw in your life. Yeah, and between there and some records down on Port Bella Road with Trevor Horn, you know, yes. I mean, that's another one that's great. I loved it when George Michael was in there. We were doing the driver and we were mixing down there and uh, Sam. And George had, uh, had one of the other rooms. And uh, him and I think his engineer was called Juju, I think his name. Yeah. God, I, I always remember all these guys. They're fucking great, right? And, uh, and they, God, I went in there. He invited me to come and listen to something one time. And I, so I go in there and there's another another Mars project. Right? <laughs> And they got sort of like six, eight, it's a small room, but they got six or eight fans trying to cool all this equipment off, right? Yeah. Blimey. And George is, George is freaking everything. I mean, he, yeah, he was brilliant, George, Mike, I tell you, man. I mean, he, he designed all them records too. I mean, they're beautiful records. He just, what a, what a gentleman. You know, a lovely guy. God. Yes. Well, I think around that time he was doing that album, I think it was, was it Listen Without Prejudice or something yeah, like that? Yeah, that's he, right, yeah. He might have been he doing... He did that, he was doing Father Figure, right? Right. And he was explaining to me that the way he had it originally, it was like, all I wanted plastic, Father Figure, back in my life, you know that, right? You know, in a, in a dance thing, and then he says, "You know what? It didn't it didn't feel right to me. The emotions wrong." And he's explaining to me the song and go and all this, and I'm sitting there listening to him. He says, "Come and have a listen. See what I've done now." And he goes, "All I want to is the and He totally re-recorded the whole song and re-did animated the whole thing. I thought he played me the original. And I went, holy shit, it's a totally different song. He said, no, it's the same song. I said, no, what I mean is it's, the emotion is totally different. He said, great, yes, good, yeah. Right. Yeah, so no, he was, I think that was his, yeah, the Faith album, that album, uh, that was... That was Faith, yeah, Faith, right, okay. amazing yeah. man. So then in the 90s, you do a lot of touring with with various kind of people, like, was it um, Mick Taylor and... Oh, Matt? yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So what yeah, was we we do me and Mick get on. We're going to do some other things here. Is uh, uh, we're going to do this big documentary movie thing that's coming up here. In uh, um, I got a whole company. Well, actually, it's Johnny Depp's company. He is a film company and a movie company and a publishing company. Things and we're really good. We've been really good friends way before this nonsense going on. It's got nothing to do with anything, you know. Mm. But um, me him and Joe Perry are. are, are, are we're working together on an album uh, of Joe Perry's, right? And, Excellent. Uh, and, he, and and Johnny kept saying, he said, you know, could we sit like me and you, we sit telling stories, you know. And, and uh, he says, you know, have you ever thought of doing a book or a movie or something? I said, well, yeah, sure. You know, it'd be great if we could get some back in to do it. And he goes, so later on, we finished the album. And then, uh, I don't know, about a year later, he says, you know what? I want to put this together. I've been thinking about it. I'll I'll put it through our company through through uh, the film company, and we'll make a. He says I think instead we'll do the book later on. You can do the book, but we'll do a movie documentary, but more of a movie. Yes. And 
we'll get together on it for ideas and design. He said, because I've got a whole load of ideas. This is Johnny, right? He's all involved in it now. He says, and I've got some great ideas of things we can do and make it a movie movie, not just a documentary, you know. He says, not just having acting people in it, but how you can work pieces of footage and morph things and do all sorts of st stuff now, right? I went, Jesus Christ, really? So anyway, <laughs> we got we got a, one backer that's uh, totally in, and uh, and it's looking like yeah, the, 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 it's all coming down uh, at the end of this. Well, hopefully, touch wood, uh, in a couple of months. You know, Blimey, we're going to start on it. That is going to be very exciting. Oh, it'll be pretty, it's pretty spectacular. I think it's John's. John's all into it. He's like, God, he's like, and he's got all these ideas and that. And he's he's very, very, you know, he's a great actor. You know, I mean, he's got some great ideas and things. So, and he wants to wants to do all this. So, I'm very flattered. You know, it's great. well, absolutely, he's a lovely guy, lovely guy to work with. You know, and all I guess. That. I guess all he... that violent thing. I when that all started, I I met Amber, the, his wife, you know, when we started working together. Um, yeah, she's a boppy little thing and everything else. But all the anger thing, I I couldn't quite get that, you know. I I can see how she probably went off and you know pissed him off. But I mean, I don't. <laughs> I, I it's like welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, if if that didn't happen to him, I mean, that wouldn't be a guy. The thing is, yes. the thing is with John, though, wherever he goes, he so, it reminds me of like the Errol Flynn syndrome. He's like, he's such a chick magnet; it's ridiculous. <laughs> so, wherever he goes, you know, he's he's very good. he's very nice with it. So. Uh, you know, it's just one of them things that happens. And uh, luckily enough, he's he's got out of it now, so he can get back to playing guitar. Yes, <laughs> I think he was with Jeff Beck, wasn't he? Quite last yeah, week. Yeah, I know, I know, Jeff. It's great. Like you see, all the all the guys and everybody backs him up because they're all going. They're all probably going. Oh, yeah, we all have one of them. You know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're 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 all uh, you're all do one of those at least. You know, just don't get two or three. Really. <laughs> so, how do you? I mean, with your kind of kind of career, both on the music front, you know, keeping hold of your music and sort of, do you sort of have to just let go of that? Though occasionally you get the odd royalty check or someone wants to cover your record, and do you have do you have ownership of the, the music now? Yeah, yeah, I own I own most of my publishing now. Yeah. So that must be a yep. huge relief. And you must yeah, well, it's, it's a relief as and when, you know, it's going to be interesting when we get to doing, like, the movie and doing things and and you do. I'm not, put it this way, I'm not beholden to anybody that's going to come banging on the door, oh, you didn't pay us, and all that nonsense, you know. Yes. And then... it was just, it's just the first two albums, but then that's a long while ago and all those songs, and that's different. But... There's, there's things coming out in a couple of TV movies here in the next couple of months uh, of stuff that I own that will be interesting, you know. Yeah. So to keep yeah. to keep the hustle going, do you, was it your kind of playing live that sort of kept, you know, everything kind yeah. of... Yeah, well, I love playing live. I mean, uh, you know, I like people. I don't, you know, some people are sort of a bit funny. They don't like to play live, right? They don't like they. They're more personalised, you know. I I remember it, it's just, I couldn't believe it actually. With with Joni Mitchell, with uh, Joan, who is the biggest sweetheart in the world, probably the, one of the best musicians I've ever ever had the fortune of meeting. You know, God, yeah. 
you sit and listen to it. She's sitting in front of you playing one guitar and singing. No mm-hmm. mind, nothing. Just sitting on your couch, just playing. And she's all nice. She I'll play you a song and play this song. And your life's changed. <laughs> <laughs> it's like she tells you a story and you're sitting there either crying or, or just you lost for words. It's like, oh, yeah. You, and you don't say, did you write that? Because she just thought it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's her. When she sings this, it's her. But now, here comes a strange one. There's a good mutual friend of ours, and Graham's too, called Joel Bernstein. Joel Bernstein's always been friends with Joni since he came from Canada. Right? Yeah. So he always... Joni not only plays in different tunings on guitar, she makes up her own tunings. Yeah. Yes. I get a load of that. I did, she did it to my guitar at a gig one night. We were playing in LA. She came to gigs. She's sitting in the dressing room playing my guitar and tuned it. In, oh God, no, some tuning. And then I went to go and do an acoustic song and I couldn't even get a chord out of it. I don't know what she did to it. Right? So I left it in that tuning. I, I went and did it electric. And then later I said to her, what the hell is that? Oh, that's one of my tunings, right? I went, oh, okay. Because I'm just working on it. Now, she plays it and it sounds fine. So I took it home. I thought, mm, okay. So the next day I got the guitar out. And here it is. And I think, it took three days. I could not make a song up. I could not play anything I knew. I couldn't get anything out of it, right? No, unbelievable. So Joel, they suddenly turn around when she became really popular, right? And asked her to do the Dick Cavett show, which is a big talk show here. Yeah. You know, like Johnny Carson thing, you know. And we know Dick Cavett is. Anyway, so they asked her to do the show. It's very important. And he wanted you to do it. Well, you're solo. And she freaks. And so Joel said to me, he said, why are you freaking? She says, I don't remember all those tunings. <laughs> it's all those records and tunes that you've heard that you love, right? She don't remember, right? And the show's on tomorrow. Without fucking, right? And all this. So Joel says, don't worry about it. I had a funny feeling I wrote all of these tunings down. He'd written them all down when she was doing all these songs in the studio, right? God, that's lucky. Yeah, there's a book out if you if you if you're so interested. It's a great thing to have. It's it's the chord book of Joni Mitchell, her music, uh, Joni Mitchell's music, and Joel wrote the book. It's Joel Bernstein, so you'll know who, who the right one. And it's got all the tunings as well. Otherwise, you'd never be able to play the songs. God, <laughs> that's extraordinary. Right? Yes. Yeah, totally extra- I've never known anybody. I know I knew Richie Havens really well, who plays in uh, raga tunings, very strange Indian tunings and things. That he taught me a lot, but but nothing like making your own tunings up. It's just even David Crosby looks sideways. I don't know what she's doing. Leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When she do the gigs. She she hates to do gigs. Not just because of that. She's totally nervous about... She doesn't like doing, playing things to audiences. No, I think after... She'll sit on a couch and sit there and, and, uh, and play one-on-one or to a couple of people sitting there. But when it's a lot, she hates doing concerts. I mean, 
I mean, when she's that, and Barbara Streisand is apparently is the same way. She has a fit until she gets on the stage. Right? Yes, I know, it's weird, isn't yeah. it? See, I mean, I bless those people, you know. I know. Really a, they got such a gift, and, you know, it's different for everybody. So, you know? sort of, with, with sort of coming up, obviously, in a couple of weeks' time, you're back in the UK with, yeah. you know, about six or seven dates, and then you, you know, do New York and New Jersey as well in August. I mean, yeah. do you also have other regular spots as well in LA that you play on a. Well, re- we, we had. <laughs> I had a bunch of things going on before that COVID ticket, and I'm just starting to get them back. There's. A couple of casinos out here that are bigger here that are really good gigs. And then when I get back, I got a couple of different things that we, we want to do. And there's some very interesting gigs out here, especially in the desert. Yes. There's a, a big cowboy bar up in called uh, called uh, Pappy and Harriet's. So it's famous out here. People come from Sweden to it. I actually so people, I played it one, and we it's like three, four hundred people, right? And these couple come up to me, look at me. I thought they they look extremely healthy. <laughs> look at them, all blonde and healthy and oh, and tan and wow. But that you know that snow tan's a lot different than the, you know uh, laying on the beach, right? Yes. So they come over and they said, "Tell you, oh, you know, it's good to see you. We came to see you." And I said. Oh, well, where are you from? And he said, Sweden. And I went, oh, you're here on holiday then? He goes, no, we just came over to see you. I said, what? You came from Sweden? He says, well, we thought of coming, you know, to either to New York. He said, we thought we'd come, where should we go? And we saw you were playing, so we're gonna, we came to see you play because you haven't played in, in Europe in a while, and which is true. I hadn't, you see. I thought, Jesus Christ, you know. But if you saw it up there, it's all Gene Autry country. He used to own all the property, right? And shoot all those movies we, you know, used to watch when we were kids, you know, those, those westerns, you know. Yes, right? absolutely. Fistful of That's dollars. where they shot them all up there, right? Okay, yes. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic countryside, all the boulders and, and the, the mayor. Oh, it's just, I love it out. This is, it's only 20 minutes from me here. It's just up in the hills, you know. Amazing. Yes, well, yeah. I've just been looking at the, they've got some amazing gigs coming up as well, haven't they? They've got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there's some great ones. These, this tour is going to be really good, going around, around a lot of the places. Glastonbury, the Jazz Cafe is going to be like, you know, I love it there. That's great. Yes, you know? absolutely. And if you could have um, just said something, kind of whispered something to your, I was going to say 16 or 18, but 15, 16-year-old self, is there anything that you'd have thought, yeah, that would have been quite handy or that would have been a bit of good advice, even if you had ignored it? I just wondered if there was anything that you thought... Yeah, that would have been really sensible. Well, what do you mean? What something you should have done? You mean? Well, you know, oh, with oh. all the with the decades, the years and decades of kind of experience and and kind of learning and sort of kind yeah, of developing. Right? Yeah. I just wondered if oh, there was a few. Been, what would have been good? Yeah. What would have been? Yeah, like... to be in a group with Jeff Beck, that would have been good. I always thought that. <laughs> Every time I see him, I say, "God, oh, well, you know, we should do something." He says, "Yeah, we should." You know, <laughs> I don't know as yet. We haven't, but you know, I love and, Jeff Beck. That's I know one that. Thing, I know when David. You know. Yeah. Oh God, I was going to. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you there. I was no, s- you didn't. No, go on. It's a conversation. Because because no, I was no, I was going to say because yeah. I know David Bowie was like he's always going. Oh yeah, you know I really wanted my Jeff Beck and I got Mick Ronson. So you know with Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> did he? I didn't hear that. With yeah. Yes. Oh yeah, Mick Ronson. Well, bloody hell! Careful what you wish for, really. But, I mean, 
Meek was a bloody lunatic, you know. He's a great guitar player, but what, what a screwball. But he was really wild boy. Right. right. Yeah. But well, he, when you listen to his play, and that's how he plays, so uh, you know, that's what you get. You so know? was Jeff Beck particularly, was he up there with Jimi Hendrix in, in sort of... Being... Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, the few. I mean, Jimi stands unto himself. I mean, I've never heard... No, uh, Jeff would agree. He said, I've never heard anything like that in my life. <laughs> you know, he just stands apart from everything. But the thing with Jeff that, uh, I, that I love, and I always did, I, he's my favourite guitar player as a virtuoso guitar player. He he took what all the guitar players, Eric, uh, Jimmy Page, everybody, and uh, and, and uh, Mick Taylor, he'd agree, and he took it to another place. I mean, you know, all of these guitar players have their a very significant style of their own, playing blues licks, pentatonic, playing that kind of thing, you know, from Elmore James or from whatever Buddy Guy and all that. They, they, and BB King taking that framework and then taking it somewhere else, right? Yes. And with different amps and and that. But Jeff has kept slowly recreating it and reinventing it to the point where I saw him in New Orleans on stage and it blew my mind. And he's out there playing La Traviata by Verde. <laughs> I'm standing there going, that's, that's La Traviata by Verde. And he's, here he is with boots on and shades and all, and he's leaning back playing opera. I'm going, yeah. Now there's few people that have the mind and and the actual technique to be able to voice all those notes like an opera singer, right? Just phenomenal. I mean, it just blew my mind. I can't believe it, you know. Yes. That was yeah. it. it was good. I mean, on the guitar playing front, did you think that when the Rolling Stones got Mick Taylor, they that was their kind of golden period? Uh Interesting, you see, because I worked with them when it was Brian, yeah. right? First of all, and that group, which we'd grown up on, was a rhythm group. How, how do I describe it? It's like this: if you listen to them early records, they go back, go back, You can hear it's like a, an engine moving, right? Yes. That was the technique. And how they, I don't know how they, I sit watching them every night to try and see if I could get that thing down in my, with my eyes closed or without, or watch them individually and see, well, what's he doing and what's he doing? But it's too slick to figure out. It's a natural thing, right? Brian Jones is one of the best rhythm guitar players you ever heard in your life, right? Yeah. When you watch him, he's playing a very unbelievable, un, unusual sort of rhythm thing, right? That goes with, and then Keith goes against it. So that was that. Then when Mick Taylor joined, it totally changed. This is a totally different group now. It's totally different, and it's not the rhythm group anymore. Now it's Keith playing more rhythm, chunky chords, playing the chord structures of things, and, and Mick Taylor playing against him, like with Brown Sugar or something like that. But they're playing double parts together. Yes. A lot of times they'll be playing the same licks but counterpoint, right? Yeah. Very, very, <laughs> a whole other different deal. It's like twin solos a lot of the times. You know, you've got two people playing twin solo things, right? 
And uh, not only that, you know, you, 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 Mick Taylor's a fantastic lead player. We, we did something a few years ago, well, it was about six years ago, and it was a tribute to Jack Bruce at the at Shepherds vs. Uh, Empire. Right. right? And, uh, and Jack's son, in, 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 very, very flatteringly, uh, invited me to go over and do a song I, in the show. And he said, uh, he said, you know what? He said, do you know where Mick Taylor is? I said, yeah, I know where he is. He says, I said, he's in Holland. He says, do you think he would come over and play? I said, well, yeah, I would, I'll give him a call and see. Huh? Yes. And uh, I saw a call up me, and, uh, and he said, oh, that'd be great. And he says, he wants us to play a song. And so Mick says, well, what song do you want to do? I said, well, he wants us to do White Room. Right? And he went, oh, I like that one. I said, you know that song? He said, no, but I'll, I'll go upstairs and learn it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go upstairs. This is serious, Mick. It's the way he is, right? He hates rehearsing. He always says to me, why ruin a good gig by rehearsing? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I said, yeah, well, that's easy, that's easy to say when somebody plays as good as you do. But I said, I can't quite get away with that, you know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Not only that, I'm singing too. So just get back on your, get back on your chair. Yeah. So anyway, we got over there. He came over and, uh, and everybody was chuffed. Uh, we get to do in White Room. When it comes to the ultimate solo, you know, that Eric does, it goes on and on and on. He, Mick, off the top of his head, he got it figured out mentally. He did, he started off doing Eric Clapton. It's just identical to Eric. Just those same licks, right, in White Room. Then it went into, like, it went into Hendrix. Out of blue. And he went into, like, a, said it just like Jimmy, right? And I went, I'm standing, I'm singing, so I've got nothing to do with this, right? And I'm standing there watching him, and he's, he's looking at me winking, right? And he goes into, like, Jimi Hendrix for a while, and then he comes out of that, goes into that Mick Taylor bottleneck thing, like in the Stones, right? Yes. And I went, you bugger you. <laughs> that was, it was an anthology of guitar players in a solo. Very smart, right? Yes. Very, very, very clever. Very so, clever. was I mean, was he one of the most, you know, was he one of the most natural guitar players you ever knew or met? Yeah, 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 Mick. Yeah, 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 yeah. He played, played the phone book. You know, yeah. He's, you know, Mick's, he makes a makes a gem. He's he's one of the master stylists of a guitar, natural wise in England. He, he just yeah he, he, he hates rehearsing. He's like a, he's like a jazz musician. It's like if he's in the mood, you get him in the right mood, and when you, the night's good, and you get on, and everything's working, and things. He's just unbelievable, right? Amazing. That is yeah, kind of it amazing. It doesn't matter what guitar it is. It doesn't have to be a '57 Les Paul. You know, I mean, he'll pick up some old bloody Italian guitar or something that's, you know, some piece of something that's not good at all and he'll go you know this isn't bad <laughs> he starts playing it and of course it's, it sounds like him people are watching going oh wow I've got to get me one of them guitars no you don't no no you don't it's not going to sound like that when you get one right? yes absolutely yeah that's the way he is that's some a... people don't sound like that good on they've got their own setup you know yes. he, 
You just pick anything up, make it. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and I thought, God, that was that question. What you know, if you could have said something to your younger self, I can't remember what your first point was actually. Right. Um, was there anything? <laughs> was there anything else? There was like I don't know. What was your first point? I can't remember. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you could have whispered something to your sort of younger self starting out, was there? Oh, you said about playing with Jeff Beck. That's it. Um, yeah, I said that one. I what else was there? You know, the other one. I don't know. Are you, are you, you know that thing where you wish you could have done this or done that or everything? No, everything is, has a purpose to it, I think, in life, you know? Yeah. And, and I did, sometimes I wish that, you know, the record companies would have been a little more attentive to things and got behind something a bit and maybe... Uh, but then sometimes it's if you have a powerful manager that threatens them, then it works. Or <laughs> But... And maybe I would like to have been with Atlantic Records a bit earlier when, um, before uh, Armut was deciding to go on the chair, on the board, chairman of the board on uh, Warner Communication. He was leaving Atlantic Records. He'd had enough of, of being with the company. So uh, I caught him on the back stroke of that thing. There's all sorts of things like that. And who else was it? Uh, I'd love to have seen Aretha before she passed. I, I didn't get to see her. I haven't seen her in years. And and uh, I talked to her on the phone, and uh, and she she threatened me. She said, man, when I play L.A. again, you better be there. Oh, I ain't talking to you again. Oh, wow. <laughs> I like to be threatened to go to a gig. And it was yes. a bit of practice, yeah, man. <laughs> you know? But it's and so... there's all sorts of things. But, you know, God bless us all. It's, it's great to just, you know, we can still go and do play some gigs and hopefully everybody's into it and then uh, you know and has a good time yeah that's the main thing yes you know? and i i think hopefully the 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 month of june is going to be lovely and you'll have a great yeah it a will great be. a great time back in the uk oh god i see a whole bunch of the bloody ca- casting cup you know you never know who's going to turn up you know Yes, I got, uh, got a great call last night for who's coming. I went, uh oh, starting starting to, start to realise I'm I'm doing the gig now. He's Spikey from the Choir Boys, right? You know, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> that liven it up. So like Spikey says he's coming to the gig. I says, yeah, that's all right. I'll put barbed wire around. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Have some have some. Would you prefer barbed wire or razor wire? Which one would you prefer? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's a classic. It's a classic. Well, look, classic. You know, but there you go. He's a young, he, we have a joke and everything. He he calls me his father. He's <laughs> on stage one night. He says, "My father's here tonight," and and I'm listening to him. He's going, "No, no." He said, "My father taught me everything I knew and all his music, and he's been so supportive." And he's doing all this. And he said, "Dad, come up here and do a song with me." And I look behind, and everybody's looking at me, and I go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. So <laughs> I get it. <laughs> he meant me, his father. I said, yeah, God, I said, if you had a kid like this, you would have drowned at a birth, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, yes, I can imagine. Oh, the last But night. I love it, you see, they, you know, there you go, you know, we're all still in the game and that, it's great. Well, absolutely, and if you're doing glass, you know, these are all crazy. They're like as crazy like we all were when when we started. So it don't make any difference, you know. You're still crazy. Yes, absolutely. Well, look, Terry, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing, actually. And um, oh yeah, this has been fantastic.
fantastic. And um, if you want, I can always send you the link, and then you can always put it on your. Uh, I don't know where. So you got... is this recorded, or are you going to write it up? Or well, I'll, it? uh, it's recorded, so I can always send you but... just the straight link, and then you can just add it to your kind of. Um, you've got archive interviews and stuff. Right. You can always put it on that. That's and... right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we can do it that way. Yeah. You can do it that way. But look, right. all the best for the the next couple oh, of weeks. Yeah. Thank you so much, Frank. Yeah, lovely conversation. There you yeah. Go. Thank you yeah. so much, Terry. Hey, we covered we covered a couple of a couple of them. It'll stay up there, really. <laughs> yeah. It's been good. It's been really... But, uh, well, again, if you're around, come to the gig if you're, if you're in town, come you know? To, yeah. And I have to... And that would be amazing. And also, just... I do love your albums. I mean, I love a lot of your work, but Seed of Memory is just stunning. It's just one of those that even one goes back to. And I can see why people keep discovering it for themselves, because it's... it's yeah, pretty... you see, I'm trying to arrange... I'm trying to arrange to put it out again, because me, me and Graham have been doing some... Uh, a couple of songs again together. Right. A couple of new, different things, you know. So we've been working. I'm going to see him probably when I when I go in, let me see, in late July, when I go to New York and do them gigs and that, because he, he lives in New York now. I, I'll probably, you know, he usually comes to the gig if he's not on tour, because you know, he's always out there. <laughs> but it'll be great. We get together again. I mean, I'd love to work with him again. He's that, it's just... just piece of cake yes you know. and it's great because i just looked at your spotify and you get one hundred and thirty-six thousand listeners a month so there you go do so i oh, three so the yep, up i'll probably give you about three pence but um but anyway well, good, yeah exactly yeah no i don't rely on that yeah but well, after this interview that'll cut that down <laughs> so, no yeah, but right. look at that i mean so so it's interesting that actually one hundred thirty-six. Uh, Six hundred. Yeah, that's good. Monthly, so um, yes, people. Yeah, are just monthly. Yeah, monthly. I know. So. See, all we all we gotta do is we just put some things. Like this movie thing is. I I got so many. Oh, I can't tell you now, but obviously, but I got some great ideas of what we can do with it well, to make it a movie that you're watching it going, and all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, what's going on? <laughs> it's like you suddenly feel like you're in it. You know. Yes. Oh yes, yeah. that was it. You do an amazing version for that, Laura. Lorraine Ellison. Lorraine Ellison, yes, Stay Stay With Me Baby, yeah. Yes, you're vocal on that. Can you remember recording that song? Oh, yeah, you know, I remember, yeah, I remember doing it. I keep saying I'm going to do it again, but, I mean, that that key was just a bit... I I, I figured all the keys out, you could drop it a bit. I love the song. It's just, you really need a keyboard to do it with. We don't have a keyboard in the band this time, but if you do it with piano or organ or something, you get that swelling drama situation of it, right? Yeah, you know? I know. It, it, when it works on guitar, sort of, but I don't... <laughs> I sort of sometimes think, yeah, well, if I had a stack of marshals, that might do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes, it would yeah. be good. Anyway, look, I'll let you um, enjoy your afternoon. All right, man. Take yeah, care. Good. Thanks ever so much, Terry. Thanks, Take care. Thanks very much, Frank. God bless you. And thanks for the opportunity. That, that was nice talking to you, man. Yeah, brilliant. OK, hopefully catch right. you again. See you later. Bye. In a bit, man. Bye-bye. OK. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is me in conversation with Terry Reid. To find out more about his life, he has a good website as well, so you can find out more about his live dates and... Various other activities. So, yes, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's C86Show. Keep it positive and nice. Otherwise, don't bother. And all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86Show again. Anyway, have a great night uh, or week. Stay safe.